Before we get going, as you know, we have a we had a really fun service last week where we had people learn how to share the gospel message and invited anyone to stage who wanted to practice um, using the living colors in front of a safe and friendly audience. <laughs> I can see you all looking at me with big eyes going, yeah, right. But anyway, we thought um, for the next eight weeks as we go through what is the gospel, we're going to every week give an opportunity for someone to practice in front of us all the things that we've learned. And so... Um, just to remember that gold represented God's plan. Some people would call that heaven. I would, I believe, personally, I like to describe it as more than heaven, but that's, that's a good start. Um, black being sin, Jesus' blood um, is red. The restoration and forgiveness, or the holiness we're given, in, um, is white, and growth in Christ represents green. So uh, I give you the encouragement to sort of go through the colors and, and learn it for yourself. Come up with your own understanding of these colors and how to articulate that in your own words, in layman's terms. Just one quick secret, like you're, I, I think you'll know this, but it's worth saying that I think, don't walk up to someone and say, you know that red, like, you know, that Jesus paid a ransom price for you to redeem you from slavery. Like, don't talk like that with people who don't even know what, or how to find John, right? Like, we have to use, we can't use ransom and redeem. That works in first century Rome. Because people knew about slavery and what it was to pay a purchase price to redeem a slave. People knew about um, uh, all the uh, you know, prisoners of war and things like that. So that's their language, and so Paul uses it. We have to come up with words of describing ransoms, describing redeeming, you know, things like that. And sanctification. We have to think of what are the ways that people in our culture can understand these words. So when you just, I tell you this so that when you rehearse this and you learn to share this, Learn to use layman language, language that Okotoks people would understand who don't even know what Easter is. Never even heard of Easter. We're, we're in a culture now that, that some people don't even know what, that Easter exists and what it's about. It's, you know, so we need to start thinking a lot more um, like a biblically illiterate society. So anyway, um, that's not to scare you, that's just to say, hey, like this, let's just be normal and then we go about this process. So, you got seven days. I actually got more than I got eight weeks. We're going to do this every week for eight weeks before I go on holidays. And so, we'd like at least one person to have the courage to come up and uh, share the gospel. And again, it's a pretty, uh, pretty safe place to do that. And people that love you, support you, and um, yeah, are out to encourage you. All right, with that, let's dive in. So, as we've already seen through a model demonstration here, we've been talking about what is the gospel. That's been the subject of a conversation around the church for the last couple of weeks, and we began a new sermon series titled that. We've learned a few things of importance up to this point. Uh, the first was even what the word means. What's the word gospel even mean? The word gospel in the Greek word is euangelion, which is translated good news. So we learned that the gospel means good news. So when someone says, what's the gospel or share the gospel, just think, I'm going to share good news. Well, we know and understand what that is. As a Christian, we believe it's the good news, God's good news, founded in what Jesus Christ has done for us and who he is to us. We also remembered, though, that that gospel word was not unique to Christianity. Christianity didn't invent the word gospel. 
In fact, it, the gospel was familiar to those living in Roman rule in the first century because Caesar had his own gospel. He was the savior of the world who had brought good news that he had come to basically make their life what it was and that like what it was that day, and that he was their rescuer and deliverer and so on. We also remember, though, that uh, this good news was to be public news, with kind of had public implications. So this idea that Christianity is a private thing, and your faith is private to you and it's individualistic, that's not what God believes. God says, no, this good news is something that goes beyond the individual. It starts with the individual, but it's the flow into the public realm of the world and public life, and to effect change in the public realm. And finally, we talked about Paul, how he said that the gospel was, had endless treasures and was unfathomable in his riches. In other words, God's message of good news is so big, so rich, it would take a lifetime to even explore every aspect of, of, of what he did for us and who he is to us. So again, the gospel is the pinnacle, of course, of, of the gospel is the message of the cross. But the gospel is so much more than just the cross. And we see that in the life of Jesus' ministry, who taught those types of things for three years. So we learned how to share it. And so we talked about gold being the God's purpose, black being sin, red being the forgiveness offered in his blood, white the restoration, and green growth in Christ. Now, the important thing about this, though, is we can't fully appreciate God's good news until we understand the depth of the bad news. Good news is only good news if you really understand the bad news. If you don't understand the bad news, it doesn't, the goodness doesn't take on full effect, does it? And so we have to understand this. And so we're going to turn to the opening chapters of Genesis chapter 2. And so why don't we stand together and read 15 through 17. And then 3, 1 to 6. <clears throat> Genesis 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Falling through to Genesis 3, 1 to 6. The serpent said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the fruit of it and from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat of the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Please be seated. So for some people... Uh, here this morning. Genesis 2 and 3 is well known to you, and for others it might be quite new, and so you're not so familiar with these uh, verses. But let me just start by telling you that the word Genesis, the book we've been read from, means new beginnings. The word Genesis means new beginning. 
And so the opening chapters of Genesis deal with the beginnings of the world in which we live. It speaks to the origins of the world, how it came into existence, that God was the creator. He created the land, the seas, the vegetation, the sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxies, the animals, birds, and fish. And last but not least, the pinnacle of his creation, human beings. We were the only ones created in his image. We were then given in marriage. That was the first relational um, um, union. And we were created to work and have dominion over God's creation. So in the beginning, there was no suffering, no death, no broken relationships. Work was even enjoyable. And initially, everything was good, or if you will, good news. Everything in the beginning was good news. But what's important about these opening chapters in Genesis is that we see that we did not randomly come into existence. We're not here by chance, and we're not here by accident. There's a God in the heavens, according to Genesis, that created us, who wants us to exist and know us. What's significant about that? This is someone who wants you to exist and know you beyond your parents. Your parents wanted to have you. That's why they decided to have children and stuff like that. God said, I want to know you. Someone loves you beyond your parents. He wants you to exist. And so as your creator, he gives you purpose. He gave Adam and Eve purpose. And they were designed with four relationships. They were to function within four relationships. The earth, delighting in its beauty, working with it and not against it. They were to be in relationship with other human beings, with operating in mutual trust and self-sacrificing love. They were to be in relationship with oneself, right? To be able to stand before others just as we are. Not stand before people feeling insecure and having fear of certain individuals and carrying shame. And we were to operate in relationship with God, gladly choosing to do what pleases Him and experiencing full intimacy. Those are the four relationships we were created to be in existence with. Now what's important is, is that this fourfold glorious command, or exist, sorry, this fourfold relational existence hinged on one command. Just one command. And when we look at this one command, we're going to discover that it's really the only command that God has ever given any human being to obey. Because when you read, you are not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you might think, well, that's how Adam and Eve sinned, but that's not how I sinned. My problem isn't going to a tree of good and knowledge of good and evil. You never think of that in terms of sin. But when you look at the principles of what happened, what God was trying to protect them from, you're going to see that what we do is still eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The principles of what happened there is the principle and foundation of sin today and how we end up in trouble. So this is really, really important. All other commands are just different ways of speaking about this one command. So let's look at it. The one important command. 
the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So notice there's two trees. The Lord God then took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, when you eat from it, you will surely die. I want to make seven observations from this one command. And I'm going to put the PowerPoint up there so you can walk along with me. We'll go one by one. Number one about this command. As the Creator, God had the right to determine how life played out. Someone might say, this command is not fair. Well, let's go through these and see if it is fair. As a creator, he had the right to determine how life played out. If you were a carpenter, or a computer programmer, and you were responsible for designing something from scratch, you determine the outcome as the author of that project, or the, the manager of that project. It's your creativity, it's your design, and so you set the parameters for it. So you, you are therefore the one who has the right to determine how that is going to look. You, you, you have the final say, if you will. The Lord, as the creator of life, has the right to determine how he wants life to play out. He, you and I can't decide whether we should have gravity and if what the, the force should be of gravity. We can't decide if we should have oxygen in the air and how much. We can't decide either, initially, what morality should consist of. God, as the Creator, decided all of the natural laws and the moral laws for how He wanted humanity to live. What's scary about this is that in our culture today, we have this attitude that no one is going to tell me how to live my life. Right? That's, the, that's, the, that's one of the battle cries of our culture. No one has the right to tell me how to live my life. And so what we're really saying to the Creator is, even though you're the Creator, you don't have rights over how my life is determined. Secondly, in no way was the command unfair or unreasonable. And the big reason is simply this. He gave them every tree in the garden to eat. So what that tells us is that that tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not necessary for the sustenance of life. Understand? It wasn't necessary for life. He gave them everything else in the garden to eat. So they weren't missing out by not having that at all. In fact, it was, well, we don't want to get to their detriment, but God wasn't withholding anything that was necessary for life and intimacy with Him. It's really, really important. Number three, the prohibition was for their good. When God told them that they ate of it, he said, you will die if you eat of it. So he's really saying this, um, you know, Amanda, Darrell, I'm going to tell you how not to die. It's for your good. I want you to live, so I'm going to tell you how not to die. So don't go and touch that one. Or not touch that one, don't go and eat from that one. So again, it's for Adam and Eve's good. The commands were for, 
to help them uh, in their intimacy with him and for their own relationship with one another and so on. Fourth, God was taking a big risk. It shows his respect for us. He didn't pre-program us not to have freedom of choice. Otherwise, we'd be robots, robotic relationships. Kind of like we would just be pre-programmed and we'd do everything he said. But as we've talked about over and over in this church in different ways in the last 10 years, um, free, uh, love can't exist without the freedom of choice. Freedom of choice has to be fully intact for love to, be, to exist. And God is the loving God who's in creation, as a creator wants us to love him for who he is and make choices out of a love relationship. And he knew that we could blow it. He knew that. Number five, there was only one tree and not two. Now, when you go back here, you, sometimes you might think there's three trees because he said, you're not to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of evil, knowledge of good and evil. Sometimes you might read that as being two separate trees, a knowledge of good and a knowledge of evil. It's not. It's one tree. That one tree contained the knowledge of good and evil in and of itself. The other tree was the tree of life. Now you might ask, why does that matter? Well, if, 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 there, were, if there was a tree of knowledge and a tree of evil, that, mean, that means God had to create evil. He'd have to be the creator of evil and good and then say, you choose between the two. But, he, but God doesn't, isn't the source of evil. So it's not the tree of evil and the tree of good. It's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so, again, God can't be the creator of evil. And so therefore we have to interpret this correctly. There was only two trees total, but this tree represented one. Number six... There was nothing inherently evil about the tree. The tree was not the source of sin. We're going to find out Satan and his deception started it, and man ended up falling through, so man was. But the tree was not inherently evil in and of itself. Again, when God declared everything in creation was good on day one through six, he declared it was good, it was good, it was good. He could not have created evil and then call that good. And finally, number seven, the prohibited tree was not solely named the tree of knowledge, which I think I've already talked about. But, it, but in essence, too, God desires us to learn. He's not afraid of you and I gaining knowledge. In fact, he wants that. Our problem is sometimes we don't know like enough about God's ways and how he wants us to live them out. So he's not afraid of you and I gaining knowledge. What he's afraid of is you and I gaining a particular kind of knowledge. And so for that, we're going to move on. So what was God protecting us, or Adam and Eve, from? What kind of knowledge was he afraid that they were going to get? Well, it was the kind of knowledge that only God can possess and still live. I'll say that again. It was the kind of knowledge that only God could possess and still live. We find the same phrase used two other places in Scripture, and it's helpful because it's used of the children and elderly. Children and elderly are the only two places in which this phrase is also used. And so you start to 
When you start to think in those categories, it starts to move you in a particular way of thinking. But in Deuteronomy 139, Israel is um, about to enter the Promised Land, and all the forefathers have been brutal in the, in the wilderness, and God's laid them low. He's taken them out and says, you can't enter. So in Deuteronomy 139, he makes this comment. And the little ones that you said would be taken captive, your children who do not yet know good from evil, they will enter the land. So whatever knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is, the Lord believes that children don't yet possess it to the same degree as the adults. So that's already giving you a hint. Second, it's used of elderly. King David had been, uh, had been running for his life, and this guy named um, Barzillai had put him up for shelter and taken care of his needs. David wants to repay this man for his generosity when he became king. So he calls for Barzillai, and he offers him to stay in Jerusalem for the rest of his life under his protective care. And so here's what he says. Uh, they go back and forth, but Barzillai said to the king, how long have I let to, yet to live that I should go to Jerusalem? I am now 80 years old. Can I distinguish between good and bad? And the Hebrew word for bad is evil. So it's something that children don't possess and something that the elderly are losing as they get older. Because that's the context of what is used in the Bible. How do we explain what's going on here? This comes from a man named Dr. Fuller. And he, he, he um, paraphrases it in this way, or he doesn't paraphrase it, this is a direct quote, I should say. He said, based on these, these uses, the expression to know good and evil signified the possession of that maturity which frees one from being dependent on someone else for guidance on how to live wisely. To know the knowledge of good and evil is the expression to know the evil signified the possession of that maturity which frees one from being dependent on someone else for guidance and counsel with wisely. In the case of Adam and Eve, it was the knowledge that God was protecting them from was this knowledge that they could say, I know what it is now to live life independent of God and call the shots in my own life. I don't need God. I can have independent moral judgment and I can be dependent on myself and not him for how life is working. How life is to work. The command would thus mean this that Adam and Eve were not to aspire to knowledge possessed by God Himself, whereby they might consider themselves freed from their dependence on Him and able to achieve the harmony they now enjoyed in the world by taking matters entirely into their own hands. By eating, they were going to discover life independent from God. And God was trying to protect them from that knowledge. Now is that contemporary or what? Think of it now. Does that not sound like our own struggles in life at many times? Like, like Lord, I've got this. I don't need you. I'll call on you when I need you. I know how to make independent moral judgments on my own, thank you very much. I'm going to go after this, do that, say this, do that. This is really, really powerful. If we sign our own 
Declaration of Independence, though, we are signing our own death certificate. If we sign our own Declaration of Independence, we are signing our own death certificate. That's why God said to Adam and Eve, if you eat from this, if you gain this type of knowledge, the knowledge that only I can possess, I'm the only one that can live independently and still live. You are created to be dependent beings on me. If you seek independence from me and gain that knowledge, you will surely die. So let me try to personify myself, personify myself as God. And I, you can work with me on this. Because you know I... I'm, far, I'm a far cry from him. But let me personify myself and try to speak to you with this command in mind. Okay? So Kevin, Evan, Roger, Stephanie, Abilene, Anda, Roger, Shauna, Michaela, Blake, all of you. You are created in my image. What you are is because of me. I have made you to depend on me for your life. Now I know that you are free to choose whether to depend on me or not, as I made you to function that way. But please... Please, please, don't use your freedom to live independently from me. Do not try to be your own God. Do not, I want you to walk hand in hand with me. Because if you don't trust me, you will ruin your life and you will die. Now, when you hear the love of God in this, and hear that he truly wants you to live, you can see how incredible this command was. He wasn't out to make Adam and Eve's life miserable. The commands he gives you today are not there to make your life miserable. It's Satan who came behind the command and said, did God really say he doesn't want you to be like him? He doesn't want you to have this wisdom, and so on. He highlighted the restrictive nature of God in the command and defamed his character. But when you see and hear what God was trying to protect them from, you can see the incredible God that we serve. So, do not aspire to the kind of knowledge God says that makes you think you can live without me. It doesn't work. So, this was God's heart in the command. But what happened? Well, we are familiar with the story. Satan came and said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. 
You will not die, said the serpent to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Satan tempted Adam or tempted Eve. She fell to his temptation and chose to cast off dependence on God and put dependence on him. She quickly gave the, offered the food to Adam and, and both fell into sin. And both quickly discovered that life was painful and very different without God. All four relationships we mentioned earlier were broken. The relationship to the earth became hard. The relationship with others were destroyed. Distrust, greed, using people, not serving people became the new, the new model. The relationship to the self filled with insecurity, wearing superficial, if you will, like hypothetical masks to not be known and seen by people. A fear of being known, all the anxiousness that comes with that. Relationship with the Creator, this, this concept where we often run and hide from Him when we don't feel worthy or we, or we do things that we feel guilty of. They quickly learned they were not created to be self-sustaining, self-sufficient, self-directed beings. Death became a reality, both physical but primarily spiritual. Separation from God and the, 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 the everlasting weight of the promise of hell. Now, the cool thing is, this is not the end of the story. None of us as humans can fix that dilemma. But God in his love began the repair job in Genesis 3.15. And you can look at this with me now. Genesis 3.15. He says to the, sick, the devil, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike you, your head, and you will strike his heel. Some of you have the word seed instead of offspring. But here's the point. There's going to be a, a, a man from this, from, come from a woman who will strike the head of the serpent, strike the devil. The Creator is going to send this person into the world to repair the damage that the, that the devil began. This Creator brings in this child named Jesus Christ. This is why in Luke chapter 10, chapter 2, verse 10, when the angels announce the birth of Jesus, they say, do not be afraid, for I bring you good news. A Savior has been born for you today, who is Christ the Lord. This Savior 32, 33, somewhere there years later, turns around and tells you and I, in Matthew 18, verse 3, to become like children to enter the kingdom. Why does he tell us to become like children? Because 
God knows that they are totally incompetent to make life work on their own. They are totally dependent on someone else for life. We are called to be like children to enter the kingdom. Now, here's where it gets really amazing. Remember the two words, take and eat. Satan's version in Genesis 2.6 was to have Eve take and eat the fruit that was offered. In verse 6, it says that she took and ate. She took and ate. Jesus then, thousands of years later, in Matthew 26, sits down on the last night before his crucifixion, and it says that while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. You can check me on this, and I apologize if I'm wrong, but I believe that this is the only two places in all of Scripture where take and eat are used congruently in the same sentence. I can't find anywhere else in the Bible where take and eat are used twice in this manner. But you have it at sin entering the world, and you have it at what Christ is going to do on the cross within hours. He's undoing everything the works of the devil came to destroy. This is good news, church. This is the gospel. So Derek Kidner says it this way, in reference to the two taken needs. So simple an act, so hard it's undoing. God will taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. And so this is why Karl Barth defines the gospel in this way. The Creator's total help for our total need. The gold and the black of the gospel living in color in fullness. I'll just give you some basic lessons, but I mean, I could probably add another four or five and reword them, but these are some basics to take away. To possess the knowledge of good and evil is to know what it is to live independently of God. We have that now, by the way. So we have that knowledge of good and evil. That's what he's trying to protect us from. He didn't want us to know how to have independent moral judgment. He didn't want us to know what it was like to live free from Him. God is the only one who can possess this kind of knowledge and live, as He's the only one that can independently live from another being. That makes sense if you're the Creator. You don't need someone else to be dependent on. Third, God's commands are always given in love and with our best interest in mind. Don't eat from this tree. I don't want you to die. I don't want you to know life independent from me. I want to spare you from that heartache. And then finally, Satan always seeks to make God seem restrictive and untrustworthy. And that's, why, that's why there's so much pull when, when you know what his commands are and there's this rise of flesh inside that wants to go against God's way. You know what it is to, to live that life. But God has come to set us free 
and the works of the devil. Lord, we give you thanks for your word and how rich it is. One command, and yet it has so much to say to us. Forgive us, Lord, for when we've strayed in independence from you. And Lord, may this renew us in a, in a fervency to want to get back to be completely dependent on you in every area of life. doesn't matter what we're faced, that we seek your guidance, your, your will, and that we can trust you fully. Let's forget the lies of the accuser, and uh, we just totally trust in your Holy Spirit to lead and guide us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.